0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: you're listening to bulletproof radio with dave asprey when you hear someone talk about blood sugar you might zone out that's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes but blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor... Neurohacker Collective created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. Today's
2: cool fact of the day is that based on a 2012 study, there may be a use for ambient noise. It can boost your creativity. In a paper published by Oxford University Press, Researchers found that modest amounts of ambient background noise, around 70 decibels, would stimulate the creative centers of your brain, which means that your capacity for abstract or creative thought can increase, which is kinda cool. That's about the level of noise in a coffee shop or television on normal volume. The only problem, though, I might add, is that ambient noise might help abstract or creative thought, but what, if you want, is focused thought that might actually be really, really bad for you. So the right type of sound environment completely changes the state of your brain. And another very small note about this cool fact of the day that's going on and on, because it's cool, is that this is very different for babies. Uh, there are white noise generators for babies that actually are harmful for them. Their brains don't put neurons down very well when they're listening to white noise. So babies like silence, unfortunately, because white noise generators are nice because they mean you get to talk if you're an adult. All right. Enough about noise. Today's guest has been on the show before, and he co-founded the popular coaching application called Coach.me, which was formerly known as Lyft. And the whole idea is that by focusing on positive reinforcement and having community support, you can get to your goals faster. So this is a hack for getting to your goals. And the reason that I like him, his name is Tony Stelbein, uh, by the way. Uh, Tony, welcome to the show. (laughs) Hey, so good to be here. Uh, the reason I like Tony is that Tony's actually a geek. He was an engineering lead at O'Reilly Media. He's director of engineering at odio.com. And he eventually became CEO of Crowdvine. But the point here is when you take one of these like kind of dirty engineering minds, I only say that because I come from the same general world, and you have us start looking at what happens to human performance, what you get is you get a hacker doing things that normally hackers wouldn't do. And that's the essence of biohacking. So here, those two things like oh people don't follow through on stuff what helps you look at the data and then you build a system to take advantage of the knowledge from the data and what do you know there you go you've got coach.me so welcome to the show i think i already said that but tony i'm always happy to get a chance to chat with you because you're working on a different part of biohacking
3: yeah dave i I mean good to be here how many of your guests get two chances to hang out with you I just feel very lucky.
2: About not that. not very many. It it happens on uh, on rare occasions. Um, usually when they're doing something new and interesting, which is actually something that you're doing, which is kind of cool. And I'm guessing because the audience for Bulletproof Radio has grown so much, we're about to cross our 25 millionth download. Wow. And uh, this week we are again number one on iTunes uh, in in our category. So I'm. I'm blown away. I'm grateful. And it's amazing because I would have had this conversation with you just to see what was going on anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. now like, oh, a quarter million people here this week. That's cool.
3: <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. You know, I, I love your I love your intro because the thing for me that is like, you know, let's talk about that dirty hacker mind. Because last time I was here, all I was talking about was the behavior design. Now working on something I think a little bit bigger because we're not just trying to reinvent a um Uh, how you do behavior design, we're also trying to reinvent uh, an industry. And I love that, like, that dirty hacker mind walks into an industry and goes, what the hell are you guys doing? This is the worst possible way to do everything that you're doing. And I think this is the thing that you and I are actually both doing right now because I know Bulletproof just put out, you know, just started doing coaching certification. And so you and I are both in this moment looking at the coaching industry and just shaking our heads going, no, no, no. There has got to be a better way to do this. Does that sound right to you?
2: It does, and, and there's also just a better set of content where I, I look at this as, where can I do the maximum good? But also, like you, in fact, because we're both engineers, this will make sense to you. When I first started out in, in tech, like in the early-mid-'90s, I was like, okay, my job is to automate everything that I do. I was a sysadmin, so I was running servers, which is now something that you do with mostly with software. And I'm like, you know, if I can just automate 99% of what I do, my boss will have no idea that I've automated that. And then I can sit there and do whatever I want, and I'm still doing a great job. In fact, I'm doing a better job. And that line of thinking, by the way, became cloud computing as we know it today. Like, like, It's just the evolution of I don't want to touch it anymore because it's boring to do the same thing more than once. But when you take that and you're like, okay, I want to do that in the kitchen. I want to do that in my coaching practice. I want to do it everywhere. So you remove the repetitive, and you automate the repetitive, and then you just do it more effectively and more efficiently, and you're like, wait a minute. that that's It's a different mindset, but it's terribly disruptive because so many things are reliant on just old, old paradigms that came about from 200 years ago and, and things like that. So what I think people listening would want to hear right now, yeah. Tony, is why did you... Why did you go into coaching? I mean, you've been a CEO, you've been a, a tech guy. So, what made you decide this was the area that you're going to disrupt?
3: You know, like it started with first of all, I knew that I wanted to be working on human performance. Like, this is the thing I consider it my life's work. A lot of people are very stressed when they start a startup because they don't know if it's going to work. And I, yeah have this like calmness about me because I know no matter what happens with the company tomorrow, I am going to be working on human performance. I'll find some way to do that. And so, uh, last time I was here, we we're talking about, uh, lift and lift in a lot of ways, was incredibly successful at helping people form habits, but I wanted to go much further than that. And so as I was making that transition, I, I joked with a lot of people, uh, in my close orbit saying like, look, Lyft is the kind of company that's going to put me on the stage at the American Dental Association annual meeting. I will keynote as the person who helped more people floss than any other person in the world. Like <laughs> I think we help people floss more than a hundred million times. Yeah, they, they actually call you floss master on the street, right? I'm, right. I'm floss master T <laughs> and, um, and you know, that's, I'm just interested in bigger things. Yeah. And so as we, the way to get bigger, you know, to do bigger things, is to make that uh, behavior change intervention even stronger. And so the thing that was stronger than our software was our power users who had, like, let's say, a nine... Like, we had people with a 900-day streak in inbox zero who had all the potential in the world to be potential coaches. And so we started testing out coaches very early on who had... Uh, subject matter expertise and then we just expanded way beyond that. Um, and so that was my my initial interest in it is I could just see that this was even better and an example that comes up recently is we started putting out leadership coaching and our goal there is that the person we're coaching either gets a promotion or a significant change in responsibility within the first month. And so like you compare that to kudos from your dentist and it's just like they're just at different levels and so uh i think that's why i'm really excited with coaching and, and just you know what coach me is now is uh a place to find and hire coaches we still have the initial you know we're built on the initial lift community but everything that we're putting our time into right now is how how could i deliver a top-notch coach to you
2: so we should probably have a conversation there about how to hook some of the uh, Bulletproof coaches up with this because we've got about 300 people finishing the Bulletproof coaching program. I should say enrolled and in process. None of them are finished yet. Uh, it's, it's a nine-month coach certification program, but after they get out, they're like, okay, where do we connect with clients? Like, How do you right. do that? And, and, and what it comes down to is there's a bunch of people who want to be coaches. Right. There's a much smaller number of people who are qualified to be coaches, and then mm-hmm. there's enough, uh, an even smaller number of people who are qualified to be coaches and want to be coaches, right? Yeah. And, and that's what that's what we're focusing on finding and teaching, but even when they come out, they're like, okay, now if I'm qualified to be a coach, and I wanted to be a coach, and, and like I'm trained, how do I get clients? And if yeah. they don't see that there can be clients, they won't become coaches, or they'll just hang up a shingle, but they won't become certified, and they won't become trained, and and knowing how to kick ass and knowing how to teach someone to kick ass are just different skills, right?
3: We did. We actually did something with Bulletproof about a year ago, for yep. the uh, thirteen fourteen months ago for the re- release of your book for the the diet book, right? For the diet book for the Bulletproof Diet, we we threw. Actually, we recruited from your community and we trained them to be bulletproof coaches because we like that subject matter expertise. Like they, these are bulletproof been,
2: diet coaches, though, right? These coaches, are not the full, yes. the full fledged ones. Are, you know, there's personal growth, right? Yeah, I know, right. Like, okay, right. That's right. Let's yeah. be clear
3: about that. A very narrow, narrowly focused, just for the diet, and to help people understand, get through the issues, ask questions, like have someone who's been through the bulletproof diet before actually guiding you through your own experience, and so. This came back around for me about a month ago because I put out a call for clients that I wanted to coach because I, I often do a small amount of coaching myself in order to test me, our me, methods. Me, me
2: too, like, like if, if you want to stay focused, you should be coaching like one or two people just because it's
3: important. Like, right, you, I mean it, it's such an important part of experimentation for me. And so I got a client who had originally joined through that Bulletproof coaching that we were doing, Bulletproof Diet Coaching, she lost seventy five pounds. <laughs>
2: that that happens pretty frequently when people need to lose it.
3: And um, and then now she's uh, she's in your um, she's going through the bulletproof coaching certification right now, and is signed up in our system to be a coach. So like that, whole, what you're talking about that whole cycle of uh, of bringing you know bringing these coaches and find, helping them find customers. Yeah, we're 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 on that hundred percent. Um, the thing that I like that you said right there in that too, was the the idea that not everyone is qualified to be a coach. And that's, I think that's what, I, when I walked into the coaching industry, the thing that made me shake my head is, wait a second, nobody here has enough clients. Shouldn't some of you have too many clients and a lot of you have too like no clients. It just, it's like kind of evenly distributed regardless of merit. And when we started bringing coaching online, we get a digital track, you know, trail of every coaching interaction. So I know exactly which coach is good and which is not. And so you've probably done a lot of A B testing. And a lot of times when you're doing, kind of, when you're looking in the data, you're trying to find things that are like 3% or 5% better. When I first started measuring the effectiveness of coaches, there was a group of coaches that had client retentions that were three times longer than the average coach. So that's not like, that's not a tiny signal. This is huge signal in quality because that's how wide the, the coaching quality variance is. And so that's what I love, that's one of the things when I say like we want to reinvent coaching is that bringing technology to it lets you bring quality control for the first time ever. And it's insane to me that this never existed before. Uh, but, you know, now it can exist and now we can actually find the top coaches and then make sure all the clients are only going to those top coaches.
2: It's a, it's a really interesting idea. So let's say the vast majority of people listening to this, though, don't want to become coaches or maybe they're thinking it's a way to escape their uh, escape their, their daily doldrum if they have such a thing. Uh, and if that's the case, then you know, check out the Bulletproof Coaching Program, check out Coach.me and, and like yep, look yep. at getting a certification and actually uh, my strongest piece of advice there would be learn how to coach because a lot of people just don't know the skills involved and and there's a process and there's a skill set just like anything else you don't take a job as an executive chef you first learn how to cook <laughs> you learn how to run a kitchen and then you become an executive chef and uh, I've, I've worked with guys like jeff spencer who was the the team uh, physician for nine years for the tour de france teams and like he's coached, uh, he's coached me, and, and things like okay, he knows how to coach. Like it's legit, and and you can feel a difference in your results from that kind of thing. So assume though, most people there, or most people who are listening though, they're not in that category, but they're in the why the would I, guy. why would I want to coach, and and what would I get from it that I don't get from say getting a book about how to how to train, and when while we're at it, let's talk about life coach, executive coach, and like you know, exercise coach, because they're three different things. So, so kind of walk me through all that. Like, wh- why, is, why does this
3: matter for someone listening right now? I mean, first of all, let, let's say it's not that you want a coach. It's that you want better training or education. And yeah. it's what is the, the best format for that? And almost always, you would prefer a, a subject matter expert giving you individualized instruction for your goal over a book. Like if you're a yep. winner, you probably agree with that a hundred percent. If you're a slacker, maybe that like a coach might be the worst possible educational solution because there's nowhere to hide. Like they, like they will find a way to motivate you to teach you to train you to get Two-year goals. I know when I was in high school, like the last thing I wanted was individual intention. I was a total slacker. I wanted to sit in the back of the classroom and have no one even know I was there. But once I actually knew what my goals were, what my you know mission in life is, I want every advantage possible. And whenever I I meet elite performers, that's how they think. They think, how can I do this better, faster? You know, probably a topic we might have touched on last time I was here. This idea of deliberate practice right, which is the way that you get better has two components and we're overly focused on one of those components. Yes, you do have to work hard, right, like of course you practice, right, but the deliberate aspect of it of how smart are you about the time you spend practicing, that's really the differentiator once you're going for the bigger goals because everyone works hard. So like, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big sports guy, I'm a big basketball fan and right now we have the most unlikely basketball superstar, who's like you know, Stephen Curry, who's like undersized, not that athletic. He won the MVP award last year, and then this year came back and he's scoring five points per game more. Like normally an MVP does not take the leap after winning the MVP. And the when you hear his backstory, it's all about how he trains, not how much he trains, but how he trains in the off season, and that's basically true for everything. And so our goal is that if you have uh, something that you're trying to learn and practice, so diet was a great example because it's both, you kind of have to learn what to eat, when to eat it, how, like what's going to taste good, what's really allowed, where is their flex, and then you have to hold yourself to it because knowing about a diet actually does no good if you don't actually practice it. So that was a good example. Probably more than two-thirds though of what people are using Coach me for is professional coaching. That um, we just put out a leadership coaching is for um, I think what you would call executive coaching. The thing again that I thought was backwards when I looked at executive coaching is that it exists to fix people who are already executives. I mean, I was a terrible CEO for years before I got my first executive coach. And if you're like really, if you're thinking about what's the smart way to do this, you wouldn't fix people, you would groom them. You'd get them much earlier. And so our leadership coaching for like the, the early managers, the new team leads, and it's been selling like crazy because there's so many people who are in that position that that say like, yeah, I want to be a VP. I want to be an SVP. I want to be a CEO one day, but I just got my first team. I'm managing for the first time and I don't know what to do. Like I'm in over my head and uh, I want to learn how to do this well as quickly as possible.
2: Okay. So those are sort of the, the categories and, and your point there, I talk a lot on Bulletproof Radio about you know getting a getting a mentor. Like it yep. really makes sense to, yep. uh, to to have someone who's going to help you there. But a mentor is one thing, but they don't necessarily hold you accountable. They give you advice, and if you want someone to help hold you accountable, that's one of the things a coach can do really really well. They can do the advice thing, and they can also say, and by the way, last time you said you're going to do this and you didn't do it. So you know what the hell's your problem and maybe they'll have some more positive language around that or whatever, but the, the bottom line is is very few people are that self-accountable. We all want to be self-accountable, but having an external measure of that helps to keep us doing what we want to do versus what we said we were gonna do, and, and there's that, that thing, and, and for me, that's why I'm a fan of, of uh, getting coaches for the people who work yeah. for me, as well as, as having coaching myself, uh, because it's actually part of how good
3: leaders operate. right? right. Right, and so when you guys are putting together your coaching certification, there's actually a debate in coaching communities about how much advice to give. Is, it, is that a debate that you've had?
2: It's not, because uh, the Bulletproof coaching is different. We, we teach yeah. our coaches to have a, a, a personal presence, and so there's some actual like personal transformation, personal growth stuff that has to happen to be an effective coach. Right. Like If you're coaching out of ego, like a lot of coaches do, from my understanding of the world, you're not going to be an effective coach, and any advice you give is going to be tainted by your own uh, your own kind of desires that you're less conscious about. So, what we're working to do there is, is give you a sense of presence, a sense of awareness, and then a set of tools to offer. So, we do tell you, all right, look, let's, for instance, work with a client, and let's tell the client, all right, you have some things that slow you down and make you weak and make you less productive. Let's use a framework to help you decide what they are so you can do fewer things that make you weak. Like, shocking, it works nutritionally, <laughs> it works organizationally, it works when you go to sleep. Uh, so it's like, just, you pick those things off, and then let's help you add in more things that are gonna increase your strength. So there is an advice component that I think is is always gonna be there in the style of coaching we do, but a lot of prepping someone to be a coach is putting in the infrastructure they need to be able to offer this kind of advice and uh, this kind of of ongoing measurement and feedback. and it's it's a complex thing because it's not a you know a paleo certification by a long shot. It's not even a, a nutritional or uh, you know, functional anything kind of certification. It's a coaching certification. And just if food is what you need to kick more ass, then we'll, tell, we'll teach our coaches to talk about food. but it's you know it's ten,
3: fifteen percent of what we do. I, I find I learn a lot about the clients by learning how we need to train coaches. Because, you know, we train the coaches and then we see the results of that training, whereas a lot of people don't have that, that feedback loop. And so one of the mistakes we made early on was that uh, a lot of – because we recruited coaches to coach things that they had personal expertise in, we saw a lot of coaches – just really jump into sharing their expertise. They, they just really want to share, which is 100% about their own ego, and uh, that I think that's why a lot of the coaching world is about facilitation or the absolutely the number one kind of psychological skill that we that we teach in our coaches. And it's not number one because we teach a lot of it. It's number one because the data says this is the top thing you need to be able to do. It's just the ability to listen, and uh, and so because of our coaching is online, we have we can see a transcript of the interaction between the coach and the and the client. And um, a lot of times, the the coach will say like, "I don't understand why the client canceled on me because I was giving really good advice," and you'll just see in the transcript. The, co- the client said something really important. The client did not respond to that in any way. Did not acknowledge it, and then went on giving advice. And then it's like, th- and then they never got another message from their from their client. And um, this was statistically, this was the thing that differentiated good coaches from bad coaches. And this is why, you know, why when you say you know, the bulletproof certification is partly about personal transformation. That you need your coach to be very grounded, yeah, in order to be able to work with you because it's about you and not about them. And actually, every coach I've ever worked with has had a little bit of them will peek through, but there's like you really have to be conscientious about about that. Um, what, as, are there other things you've learned as you put coaching together? Um, that's
2: that's definitely been kind of the. Well, there's a bunch of stuff we learned, but I don't want to make this too much about like the, the bulletproof coaching kind of sure, thing. Sure, sure, uh, I want to pick your brain yeah. because last time we we talked about building specific habits, but I want to talk about your personal habits because yeah. you're all right. You're running Coach Me. Uh, you have your own coach. You've been a CEO and all this stuff. And we talked about meditation. When we were on the show, but I keep hearing about it. Over and over, like almost half the people, when I ask, what are the three most important things you can do to kick more ass? They're like, meditate. Like it, it's gone from 10 years ago, like only a fruitcake is going to do it. You know, like, like, you know, you're, you're completely a Looney Tunes, like, like crazy person. Uh, if you meditate and now it's like, okay, now, like, of course you meditate. You're a high performer. So I, I, I love that it's changed, right. but I want to know what do you specifically do in your meditation practice?
3: Oh, I have a very simple meditation because the thing that I learned actually from our research—we did a whole research project on this—is uh, the the value of consistency. And um, so, as it's explained to me, well, anyways, let me just say my practice, which is, I try to meditate every day, and so far this year, I actually have meditated every single day. Um, I. Tr- Ideally, I will meditate on BART, which is the Bay Area subway, um, on my way to work. So, so I,
2: the, I just have to say, this, is that a BART opening meditation? Be, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> the, um, the, I
3: just the lost thing, half
2: my subscribers with that pun, that's by it. the way. So. That's
3: <laughs> not, I might as well leave. No one's listening anymore. The, um, uh, no, jokes are good. The, so. A lot of people, a lot of beginner meditators, they ask a lot of questions about what is the right way? What is the right way for me to sit? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? Which is like, yeah. there's many ways to meditate is what it turns I, out. I call that prison meditation. Prison it, meditation. You do it exactly
2: <laughs> this way. Right? <laughs> right.
3: If you want to be a prisoner to someone else's rules, then yes, you do have to be seated, seated a certain way. But the thing that I learned is that I can sit on Bart. I can wrap my arms through the straps of my backpack, so like no one secretly runs off with it while my eyes are closed. And and the vast majority of people on Bart will think that I'm asleep. And I sit there and I do a meditation. And I love that time because it is guaranteed. Like there, no one is competing for my time on that Bart ride. And so that's that guarantees me a three to five minute meditation. And then. I'm very lucky in my office space, uh, there's three days a week, there's a guided meditation run by um, a meditation teacher out here, Will Kabat-Zinn, who's actually really well-known in the Bay Area, but also or globally, but also his father is even more well-known, John Kabat-Zinn, like is the, wrote the definitive works of American mindfulness, brought a lot of that, um, that culture over here. So he's a great meditation instructor. And when I have time, I'll sit with him. And the the thing, though, that makes it a performance practice for me, makes it a key performance practice, is that I don't use meditation to be calm, which is what I think a lot of people come to. It's like, I'm going to meditate, and all these crazy thoughts in my head will go away. I use it for focus. And so when we describe meditation to people for performance, we say, first of all, this is push-ups for your mind. This is the one exercise that we can all do to make our mind stronger. And then each each push-up, each repetition of a push-up is this one particular thing that happens in a standard uh, breath-based mindfulness meditation, which is your mind wanders. That's good. The more more times your mind wanders, the more push-ups you're going to get. And so each time your mind wanders, you become aware, well, what is it that I'm thinking about? Like, I'm always thinking about lunch, an email or a conversation. Like always, one of those th- three things, I'm rehearsing a conversation that's l- later in the day and I think, oh, that's interesting. And i become aware of it and I acknowledge it. And Will actually gave me a sentence that I use, which helps me, like really I like move it into the foreground of my conscious thought, which is when I acknowledge my thoughts, I say to myself, I am aware of that. I'm aware that I'm thinking about lunch. I'm aware that I'm rehearsing, A conversation with an investor later today and then and then having become aware of it you bring your thought your thought back to your breath to the point of focus and that happens over and over and over again and that practice is translates into the rest of your life and that it's not it's not the meditate what happens in the meditation That's the performance practice. It's the skill that you build that then you apply later on. And so let's say there's actually a window behind where I am right now where like all sorts of people I know have the potential to like walk by and make goofy faces, right? And if that happens, I could become distracted, lose like kind of lose my train of thought, or I could like just take a breath and say, oh, I'm aware that so-and-so walked by, but I'm here to talk to Dave. And then I just like get right back into that focus. So that, I mean, that's essentially how I would describe my my meditation practice. Okay. You
2: talk about uh, meditation and this new research, and you've got a very simple practice, but you're also focusing on that early leadership thing we talked about, but yeah. coaching people before their executives. What do you recommend someone who's, like, maybe a first-time manager might want to do for their meditation?
3: You know, in a lot of ways, the meditation practice is not the, the tricky part, right? I think there's a lot of places like you could download Headspace, you could download Calm, Coach Zemi has meditation practices built in, has meditation coaches built in who are great, so you know, so strong in helping you apply it. But what I would want to do is describe to you how to apply it. When you're a first-time manager a lot of what is happening is your gut is telling you you should have a conversation, but your skills and your anxiety are preventing you. Well and, said, yeah. Right? And so it's like maybe your senior manager is asking you if you can complete something and you just say, sure. Because you want to you know, you please the people around you. And, um, but the reality is you haven't thought it through. And, you know, do we have time? What all is involved? What are the details, right? And so your gut is like, on the one hand, you know, your anxiety is saying, I have to be agreeable, you might say yes, but your gut is saying, I'm not sure, right? And when the, that practice of awareness is saying, like, wait a second, my gut is saying something. All right, I'm aware that I don't really think that this is possible, now let me do something about it. So, you know, it's really like not rocket science at that point, point. you just say, I'm not sure, let me look into it and get back to you, right? So the actual actions aren't super complicated, but catching yourself is really, really hard. And, um, and this happens when you're managing people, where they'll tell you something. What if you know that you don't think is true, or that um, a lot of times what happens to me is someone will give me an answer, and it, some part of me just wants to accept their answer. I want to believe what you're saying. But a lot of times what is actually going on with that answer is either they didn't understand what you were asking for or they did not examine all of the potential options and so I always have to catch myself and say well I, I someone just delivered bad news to me. what do I want to do about it right and that kind of awareness of your subconscious so that you can catch these things that actually you know put into practice the skills of management that to me that's what what meditation brings to to the new manager, the new leader. So
2: I've worked with a lot of of new managers over my years in Silicon Valley, uh, and even with Bulletproof, and you talk about some things with young leaders that I think are, are really important for people listening to the show. And it's important because either you either work for a young leader, you're working on becoming a young leader, or you work with young leaders, or you manage young leaders, uh, or you're not working at all, in which case you still run into them all the time. Right. All right, so, so this is something that, that everyone who is a leader now was once a young leader. And this is where mentoring can become really helpful. It's amazing what someone who's managed for 20 years will know how to do in a situation where you, know, you think it's, it's the end of the world, and actually it's not. You just haven't been through it before. But you talk about going from responsiveness to responsibility and from certainty to uncertainty um, and I want to know in your own career like what was what was that like for you when when you realized I, I don't have to respond to that but I, I own it
3: so this is actually the most pivotal moment in my career because you know like a lot of engineers you end up in some project that's failing miserably and you just complain about it and you feel bad about yourself because it doesn't feel good to to fail and so I was on this one project that when I'd been assigned to it what they told me is we're ready to launch it in three weeks can you just fix these things and then and then can we launch it's funny they always phrase it to me as, can you fix these things so that we can launch and I thought that sure uh, I think I can fix those things therefore we can launch of course there's a hundred things to fix and so I was answering one half of the question correctly and and then incorrectly answering the most important thing. So this went on for like six months. And every week someone would ask me, so, you know, what's left? And I'd tell them what I knew was left. And really it was kind of the failing of the project manager to recognize that we were like kept being late over and over and over again. And he needed to go and respect the company. And I think what most people would do is say, put their hands up and say, well, this is not my responsibility. And I think that the reason people say that is because we've been poisoned by the educational system to think that there's always a hierarchy. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, my parents knew what to do. When I went to school, my teachers went to, knew what to do. When I was in college, my professors knew what to do. And then when I got my first job, my supervisor knew what I was, you know, what to do. So I always thought the person above me knew what to do. So really it was like six months of pain before I realized in fact my project manager didn't know what to do and he was not going to fix it. So this is I think kind of in a lot of ways it's what I did was such a leap of like initiative that I can't imagine very many people would do it but on the other hand as you'll see it was not that much work for a pretty gigantic payoff so on a Friday. I was so fed up, I went to the bookstore, this is back when there were lots of bookstores, and I bought this book, Rapid Development, which is by one of my favorite software development authors, Steve McConnell. And it was basically yeah. a great book on software project management, and it starts with um, like 31 classic mistakes enumerated, and, it, and I just went through this list checking them off, and I checked off 17. I was like, we were making 17 of the classic mistakes that you can make in software development, and that hooked me. I was like, great, right, I'm going to fix this thing. And I read the entire book over a weekend. And then on Monday, instead of going and doing my job, I went and found an office kind of in a quarter of the building where nobody could find me. And I spent two days specking the entire project. And then I went and then I called a meeting with the project manager. And then my actual boss, who I think was someone that had a gut feeling that this project was a disaster, but just didn't know how to deal with it. I said, "Here's the, uh, you know, we've been late for a long time. I just happened to spec out the entire project. Uh, You know, you've been asking me, can we just fix these three things until we launch? But it actually it turns out that there's 110 things that we need to fix, and over the last six months, we've um, only fixed uh, 70 or, you know, right? So." My calculation of when we can launch is that we'll launch in seven months, right? Like, and and my, the project manager is like, well, that's unacceptable. And I was like, well, you do the math differently then, but like I've done the work to say exactly like this is the reality. And um, so that was like four days of work where I was not doing what I was told. It was very much about initiative. But from that moment on, well, first of all, that project did eventually launch and I did win that argument because I was more prepared, right? I mean, that's, like, that's the thing that when we teach young leaders is that a lot of times you're losing these arguments because you're not prepared. And if you can go in and be over prepared, like no one was more prepared to discuss the reality of that situation than me because I, had, I was the only one who actually looked at all of the details and planned the whole thing out, laid the whole thing out. So I might not have been entirely correct, but I was sure as hell more correct than anyone else that I was talking to. And so, if you think about that, that was a four-day investment. My actual boss, who watched that whole thing go down, was so thrilled. She's like, she was tired of all the bullshit she was seeing, and she's like, "Well, here is someone that can actually get stuff done." Got promoted immediately. I ended up getting um, noticed by a bunch of people who were kind of tangentially related to the company. I got submitted to be um, head of engineering at the start of Odeo, which is where, you know, I ended up working on the first version of Twitter. I was like became really good friends with the CEO of Odeo, Evan Williams, who is the founder blogger of Twitter and now of Medium. And so I think it all came from four days of initiative. And that's like that's the best four day investment that I've ever,
2: you know, ever made in myself. So just sitting down and getting the facts and, and being ready. Uh, it, it's a great strategy. Go and hide in a room and do what needs doing. Uh, I don't. I mean, I work from home. A lot of people do that now. But when I worked in in big office land, last thing you want to do is be where people can find you if you want to get work done. So right. what you're doing is you're cutting out distractions. And right. I I always figured out if you go to the floor where that's like accounting, legal, and HR, uh, like like I don't know, I don't know that they they do that much. So you could just kind of go into their conference rooms and just hang out and. Uh, you 're unlikely to be harassed by other engineers or marketing people whoever the, whoever your normal customers are and yeah that, that, so that 's a cool, kind of a cool story and you go in and you do that and and you can really change things and so what you did is instead of being responsive where okay all stuff's coming in you 're sort of just responding to it, you became responsible and you figured out what 's the strategic plan and uh, I will hire people who have who can show that they they have that skill because any good manager, does not they want to hire people who are responsible for things. Right. Right? Because even once you know when you're a manager, okay, I'm responsible for it, but now you need to shift the responsibility down to a layer of people who you know will be able to take responsibility and own it and deliver results. Because you're ultimately responsible, but you're not responsible for day to day. And that's how companies work, but I don't think a lot of coaches teach this. Uh, Maybe some of them do, Uh, and the ones who do are not the ones who teach you how to lift heavy or the ones who teach you how to eat. Like Those are organizational coaches. Those are executive coaches, business coaches, whatever you want to call them. But if you don't have a good mentor or you don't have someone who teaches you this, either through the school of hard knocks uh, or through through some other things, you're probably not going to be that effective. And if you're wise enough when you're young to get this kind of knowledge, you'll probably end up with a lot less – uh, scar tissue than the average manager who's been doing it for a while who just has to learn these things by failing over and over. Uh, certainly that worked for me.
3: It's like one of the big career hacks is because it's, it's almost like a secret, right? That um, no one tells you that this is going to happen. Like you're going to have an epiphany one day and realize like, oh, I could be the person who solves that. And I actually, I had a coach explain it to me. This is like really a confrontational framing. But he said he looks at the work world as essentially having adults and children. And to be a good child, you do your chores, you do your homework, you do what your boss says. And that mindset is so ingrained in you that you continue to be a child for a long time uh, when you enter the work world. And almost the worst possible thing for, to happen to you is that you never wake up from that. Then you yeah. become a very senior child, the sort of the subject matter expert who's a complete jerk to work for, because they never really realize the big, the big picture. And the adult is the person that's like, you know, my house burned down. Well, I, got to, I don't know how to get a new house, but I'm going to find out, right? Like, right. you're responsible for those things no matter what. So, the kind of the funny thing to me when he gave me that framing is like, well, wait a second. For 22 years, my parents told me I was going to become an adult. Right, they prepped me for the idea that one day I would like. They were absolutely. They believed in college. One day I would go to college. I would graduate college, and then I would be my on my own. I'd be an adult, paying my own rent, having a job. So like, I was very prepped for that idea. But that realization I had, like going to buy the book to fix this project, no one had even told me that was coming down the pipe. Like wow. I was just like, I had no idea that that was a you know a possibility. I just assumed. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know how it, how it went, but I just always assumed the people above me would know what's going on. I had a very hierarchical view, so that's why I say I feel like in a lot of ways the educational system poisons you to um, to think in a way that's not very um, uh, just not very not very big. I mean, you're very much a robot. You know, you're trained to be a robot, and how do you break out of that? Is, I, it's an interesting question, and it's, I think, way, very ad hoc. And that's something we would like to do with our coaching is to make it less ad hoc.
2: Cool. It's a, it's a big challenge, but it's one that can change a lot of lives, which, which is really cool. Uh, last time, you answered a, the, the standard Bulletproof interview question, and I doubt you remember what you said. So right. I'm going to ask it to you again and see what the changes are. We're going to do an A-B test here. Uh, and sort of see what shifted for you. So, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, "Tony, I want to kick more ass at everything I do. I want to be better at everything." What are the three most important things I should know? So, so you run Coach Me. You've had a lot of coaching. You've looked at coaching. You've got a unique perspective on this. What are the three things everyone needs? Uh,
3: that's a great question. I, the as I go through it, kind of these are like philosophies of life that uh, the first that I would start with is a mission. And the underlying um, mechanism that makes a mission important is this concept of compounding interest, right? This is something I learned learned from Warren Buffett. But it's like, if you switch every year, if you switch every month what you're doing, you're never going to develop true expertise or mastery. And even like like our friend Tim Ferriss, who is very much... uh, you know, tries lots of different things is very experimental through that whole process. I think he personally develops a mastery over learning. And so like that is, I think that he has a mission in that, that world, right? Um, That's what I would start with that. And it actually, it took me a long time before I knew, I even understood that or knew what my mission was. I mean, I, I thought, well, I wanted to be a great programmer. And then I, I realized that programming wasn't fulfilling unless people used it so I thought well impact has to be a real part of that and then I started a business that had some impact but it wasn't in a subject area that really mattered to me and so really coaching me was the first time that I had my te- you know, passion for technology matched my you know, desire to make an impact matched with what is just intellectually fascinating to me, the pursuit of human performance um so and and so in 50 years, I mean I'm curious for you to ask me this question fifty years from now I think I might be have this genius answer and uh, because this is my mission, my life's mission um, the second, I and mean, when we talked about like I think uh, meditation is this key uh, skill, although it didn't frame it the way I usually do, I think a lot about, The uh, Daniel Kahneman book um, Thinking Fast and Slow right that a lot of a lot of our I mean we're very emotional creatures and the most rational of us kind of irrationally deny that right that um, and so I've as I've worked in self-improvement with more and more gurus is I've actually come to respect the emotional impact of a lot of what I'm doing. It's like, if if I'm not being trained emotionally at the same time as being trained rationally, then I get that it's not going to work at the level that it should. And so a lot of why I meditate is to be able to work more effectively with who I actually am, which is like all, you know, kind of hovering at the subconscious and below. Um, so that's, that would be the second. And you, you want, uh, You want a third, huh?
2: Yeah, just three big things. They don't have to be too complex, but but usually people they think about like, oh yeah, like if if someone came to me just didn't know, and I want to kick ass at
3: everything. Like, okay, what are
2: the common elements of that?
3: Here's a third that I'm trying to put into practice. This is like the like kind of the struggle right now is how to make this really work. Is joy. So one of the things I've observed about that's coming up kind of in human performance is these places where we make it really fun, people perform even better. And I think fun has a bad rap because it used to be used to disassociate. It was like, well, this kind of, this like running is not fun, let's listen to music, right? And it's actually most serious runners, which I used to be a very serious runner, know that in order to run fast, the best possible thing is actually not to disassociate, but to associate. Like, what am I feeling? You know, what is this pain feeling that I'm experiencing right now? Which of my legs are burning more? Just to be with it um, in the moment. But then I, uh, of course, this I got this from sports. I started paying attention to how the Cone State Warriors run their team. They won the championship last year. And they do this really funny thing to start their practice, which is, um, I mean, they're one of the most disciplined like most analytical teams uh, ever. Uh, They run very complex offense, a very complex defense. But the way that they start their practice is not by running the plays or like looking at tape. They just turn on really loud music and the whole team just flings full court shots. Like no one on the team is even going to take one of these shots in a game. The whole thing is just like goofing around. There's zero pressure on that part of it, but it, it just it like it gets you fully engaged in that. And so, I was thinking about that when I uh, rearranged my morning routine. Is the first time I arranged my morning routine, I wrote everything down in the most efficient way possible, and then I practiced it. Like I actually spent a Saturday afternoon getting into bed, getting out of bed, getting into the shower, doing the whole thing. It's like I do shampoo, then then soap, towel. You know, like. And I I got the time you know down. I narrowed it down more and more. And then I it kind of dawned on me that I wasn't super excited to get out of bed, even though I had a very efficient morning routine. So I redid my morning routine, where the first thing in my morning routine is to get out of bed, get on the couch, and invite the dog in into my lap. And it was like it just made the whole morning work for me and same i try i try to write first thing in the morning because that's the part of work that for me is like a unadulterated joy uh whereas i've got lots of other things that are fine like um we're doing our taxes we're getting a 409a evaluation like i'm like making all these things happen but that's not the thing that actually gets me out of bed in the morning so um that third piece I think is really un- underappreciated. I'm working a lot more of that into my, into my work and my performance habits.
2: So, so more, more joy it is. Well, well Tony, uh, thanks a ton for coming on Bulletproof radio and sharing that th- those kind of secrets about coaching and talking about the things that have made the most difference uh, for you. Uh, where can people find out more about you? I, I know coach.me is pretty obvious anywhere else you want them to go to find your work.
3: I think that's the main thing. I'm very active on Twitter. I'm, I think I'm the sixth user of Twitter. So I, like, I have a lot of my stuff there. And people can follow me. I'm at Tony Stubblebine at Twitter.
2: Nice. I, I definitely follow you. Uh, Tony, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. Have a beautiful day.
3: You too. Have a great day. Have a joyful day.
2: Uh, there you go. <laughs> All right. If you enjoyed today's episode, do me a favor. Head on over to iTunes and just leave a review and say, hey, this was worth watching. You can also find Bulletproof Radio on bulletproofexec.com, podcast1.com, and anywhere else you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, leaving a review matters, and if you love this kind of content, head on over to bulletproof.com and subscribe to get Bulletproof Coffee sent. We'll send you a couple bags of coffee, bottled brain octane oil, maybe some upgraded collagen. It'll come to you at a discount every month. You don't have to think about it, and it's just there every morning. You automate that habit, and it will totally change the way your morning goes. It's been a game changer for me for years, and I totally know you'll love it. And why think about it? Just make it happen. Have an awesome day.